I'm Gregory Berg. Today, of course, is Father's Day, and it happens to be the first Father's Day that I will celebrate without my own father, who passed away uh, last summer from pancreatic cancer. So I thought long and hard about what to play today for Father's Day, and I keep coming back to what is turning out to be my all-time favorite interview about fathers and fatherhood a marvelous conversation with a great gifted writer by the name of Tim O'Brien. I hope you enjoy this, and happy Father's Day to you. And I am tremendously honored and privileged to be speaking with a very distinguished author today, and I'm sure many of you know the name of Tim O'Brien. He has a number of important works uh, to his credit, including the really powerful book, If I Die in a Combat Zone, Box Me Up and Ship Me Home, as well as Northern Lights, The Nuclear Age, The Things They Carried in the Lake of the Woods. Uh, We have not heard uh, a whole lot from Tim O'Brien for quite some time, so it is with good reason that uh, the world is eager to now receive uh, his first book in, uh, in quite some time, and a book very different from any that have come before, a book titled Dad's Maybe Book. And in this wonderful book, highly varied, deeply textured, illuminating in so many respects, uh, Tim O'Brien is more than anything writing to his sons, to Timmy and to Tad, and trying to share with them uh, what has been going on inside of his mind and heart uh, throughout his life, before they were even on the scene, and of course since then as well. And uh, it is a book that I have been devouring with uh, eagerness and gratitude, and I am grateful as well for this opportunity to speak with Tim O'Brien about his experience of becoming a father rather late in life and uh, about what the experience has been like to put together this uh deeply honest and and powerful, entertaining, and deeply moving book, again called Dad's Maybe Book, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Tim O'Brien, we welcome you to the morning show. What a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So let's start with this intriguing title, and you explain it in the book, but I would rather uh, hear it directly from you, this intriguing title of Dad's maybe book. I have a feeling in explaining that title, you'll also kind of explain uh, why this book came about in the first place. Yes, I uh, did become, as you said, a father at a pretty late age. I was 58 when I had my first child, a little boy named Timmy. And two years later, when I was 60, had another little boy. His name is Tad. And of course, it occurred to me that because I became a father at such a late age that my children, when they began to know me, would have known an old man. That's how it works. And because of that, I decided I would simply stop writing for quite some time. It it was important to me to be a good father more than it was to write books. As much as I loved being a novelist, I love my children more. So I gave it up for about 10 years or so. And then began writing, not a book, but little love letters to my kids. Bits of advice, little stories, 
about my history as a soldier in Vietnam, my own childhood, but also little anecdotes about their lives, how they made me laugh or made me cry. And over the next few years, these pages slowly added up. I put them in a desk drawer, and one day my younger son saw them and asked if I was writing a book. And I said, maybe, I don't know, it could be. And he said, well, why don't you call it what it is? Call it your maybe book. And I liked the idea. I didn't immediately take it, but it intrigued me. And it occurred to me that all of us, in one way or another, are writing our own maybe books. Maybe tomorrow, maybe not. Maybe we'll get a new job, maybe not. Life is just full of maybes including the finishing of my book. So I, I stuck with the title and uh, I've learned to appreciate even more than I did the importance of that word maybe. It has so much to do with my own life. One of the most intriguing things you say in describing the book uh, is this, like the life I have lived and probably like anyone's life, these pages suffer from irreparable disunity. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I want you to kind of illuminate those words for us, the, the ways in which that is true. And I'm also really curious to know, for instance, what the people at, uh, at your publisher, uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, thought of, of a book that, uh, that you were acknowledging right from the start suffers from irreparable disunity. And at any point, were you ever cajoled into trying to uh, shape this book into something that, in a sense, would be more seamless, in a sense, more predictable? Or were they comfortable with this book as it took shape? No, I think both I and my publishers and the people who have read the book look at disunity as a virtue in the sense that life doesn't come out at us in an organized pattern. The phone rings and something intrudes. Uh, we'll look back at our lives, which will intrude on the present as we fall into daydreams and memory. And it seemed to me artificial to try to impose order on the life of a father whose entire existence is, is full of hubbub and a flurry of you know, homework and getting flu shots and all the things one does as you raise a child. I think that probably any family would identify with the absence of strict order in their lives. And I thought it would be a kind of lie, deceitful, to try to impose order on it, on uh, on my life. When I look back at all the things that have happened to me, getting drafted to fight in a war, becoming a writer, having a father who was an alcoholic, my life feels messy. And I think probably most people more or less feel the same. You certainly talk in the book, although not at great length, about why you became a father so late in life. And, uh, and it really stems from uh, a real sharp difference of opinion 
or uh, or or sharply contrasting dreams that uh, you and and the woman you ultimately married had about your lives and whether or not parenthood should be part of those lives. Um, tell us a little bit more about. Uh, first of all, your own hesitation about being a father and what ultimately made the difference in, in allowing you to embrace such a, such a possibility that for such a long time you kind of kept at arm's length? What a great question. It's a hard thing to answer in one respect because it involves my own fears and probably my own selfishness. I'd been a single man for some time years and years, and I feared that I'd lose my independence, that I wouldn't be able to write again, that I'd be too busy changing diapers or, you know, driving kids to the school and the doctor. And my, the woman who would become my wife, Meredith, uh, wanted children very badly. She wanted a normal, happy family life. And we temporarily broke up over the issue. I thought she was being heartlessly reproductive, and she thought I was being selfish. And finally, we got together in a restaurant and talked it over, and I realized that I wanted a happy family life as much as she did, maybe even more so, partly because I had never felt that I was even liked by my own father, much less loved. And I craved it. And I craved, uh, I, which made me want to be a, be a father and be a good one, uh, showing love for my children and being there for them, being present for them. So the this kind of narcissism or selfishness, loss of independence, was defeated by my my craving really to be a good father, and uh, so far I think I have been. Hmm. We're speaking with best-selling author Tim O'Brien, talking about his latest book, his long-awaited latest book called "Dad's Maybe Book," in which he recounts uh, many experiences from his own life, and in particular. Uh, f- from the experience of becoming a father uh, very, very late in life to two sons he loves very much, Timmy and Tad. I'm really intrigued by the fact that one of the first chapters in the book, titled Row, Row, is a, is a more than anything, a story of kind of an unrelenting nightmare that occurred very early in Timmy's life. I mean, I'm, I'm saying a nightmare for him and for you and your wife uh, because of, of something that was going on that just led him to cry and cry and cry. Crying, which you said at one point, was not baby crying. It's hate the world crying. It's bloody murder crying. Uh, explain what was going on. I, actually, even before that, uh, I, I wonder why this story shows up, in a sense, so early in the book, and 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 why you tell this story in in such detail. It's clearly a really important story for you. Yes, I mean it. The anecdote that you just mentioned is 
kind of confirmed my worries about becoming a father. Young Timmy, from the time he was born for the next, oh goodness, seven months, six months or so, cried relentlessly. And we, he would cry when he ate, and he would cry when he didn't eat. He would cry in his crib. He'd cry anywhere, and it didn't stop. Uh, at most, he would sleep for 15, 10 minutes, and then begin crying again. And it wasn't even, as you say, it wasn't just crying. It was a kind of shrieking and a kissing sound. And we would call the pediatric nurse and ask her, help and we were told to put the boy in a in a little basket atop a clothes dryer and the noise of the clothes dryer and the warmth of it would put him to sleep or stop the crying we were told to drive him around town and that might stop him all kinds of things and nothing worked and over the course of those next many months we did everything in our power to hold the boy, to make sure we fed him, and not to feed him too much, and nothing worked. Eventually, the crying disease caught on in our house. My wife started crying and crying because she, the, 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 the experience of having a baby who wouldn't stop. Um, I would sit in the dark and her rocking chair from midnight till five in the morning, holding the boy, singing, row, row, row your boat to him over and over and over. And eventually, my wife began just weeping one day in uh, right next to Timmy's bedroom. And I didn't think about it. I just did it. I put us all in a car and drove to an emergency room. And seven hours later or so, we emerged from the emergency room with three prescriptions. We had Xanax and myself and my wife to calm us down. And the drug called Prilosec for Timmy had turned out he'd been suffering from an extremely severe case of acid reflux disease, which caused pain when he ate. And if he didn't eat, he would cry because he was hungry, because he couldn't eat. And the... The experience of those seven months was a tough introduction to fatherhood. But I remember thinking when it was all over that one of my obligations as a dad was to be present for a kid when he was when he couldn't express his pain. He was a little baby, he couldn't talk. And to hold him. And I've been holding the boy ever since. He's now 16 years old, and every chance I get, I'll hug him or hold him. And I think my desire to, to cradle my own children was really born in those first months of Timmy's life. Hmm. And what you tell us is once that nightmare was over, you said that there was a, a strange way in which Part of you missed those days. You write, I don't miss all the horror, of course, but I do miss surviving the horror. I miss our rocking chair. I miss holding Timmy in the dark. I miss row, row, enough to feel acutely what is missing. And I suspect that anybody reading those words can probably identify, even if they haven't 
experienced exactly what you and your wife experienced with Timmy. Uh, but but for many of us, uh, even events in our lives that are the most difficult, uh, there is part of us who misses the experience of weathering those experiences. Exactly. Uh, that I make it a likened the experience to Vietnam in a way that I've hated the war, or I hated being shot at, I hated getting wounded, I hated the death all around me. However, when it ends, it's like a a tooth has been pulled, and your tongue kind of probes that empty spot where the pain used to be, and in a way, you don't want the experience back, you don't want the horror back, but you do miss gutting your way through it and doing your best to hold on to your sanity and hold on to your humanity. And you miss the struggle of making your way through bad times. No one wants them, but once the pain is gone, there's a sort of strange feeling of, of nostalgia when you look back on um, periods in your life where you forced yourself to go through a bad period and somehow emerged out the other end of the bad experience. We're speaking with Tim O'Brien about his book, Dad's Maybe Book, in which he recounts many experiences from becoming a father late in life and drawing also from uh, all kinds of events that uh, were also part of his life before Timmy and Tad, his two young sons, uh, came along. One thing that is intriguing about the way your book is laid out is that there are a number of chapters which are titled Homeschool. And um, explain to our listeners what is found in these many different chapters, all called Homeschool. Well, essentially, I'm simply trying to recreate or replicate our dinner table conversations as the boys grew up. They would ask me a question, for example, about what did you do in Vietnam and what was it like? And we talked for a while about it, and then I'd ask them questions in return. How would you feel about being told by your country to kill people? Would you feel misgivings? Would you do it without thinking about it? And these conversations on all kinds of subjects about writing itself. I've been a writer for almost my entire life. They would ask questions, and I try to teach them a little bit about why I write and what I write about and the importance of language in our lives. Even if you aren't a writer, you do have to write essays for school and scripts for television or radio or postcards or tweets. And over the years, I've tried to instruct them on writing. But the interesting thing about for me about the homeschool chapters is really what the kids have taught me in, in over the years about getting in touch with my own emotions the way a kid is in touch. And one of the events I recount is the day my mom died. We happened to be vacationing in southern France at the time. and I got an international phone call from my sister saying that my mother had passed away. And I remember telling the two little boys who were then about seven and nine years old, respectively. I said, my mom died. 
we were playing ping pong at an outdoor table at a fancy resort. And the boys didn't say much, and I didn't say much. And for two or three hours, we just whacked that ping pong ball back and forth. And then later in the day, as we were leaving this resort to go into town to uh, have dinner, we were walking down a long hill into this little village. And it was twilight. The purple air was around us, the Mediterranean out below. And I took Timmy's hand, and we walked in silence for a long time. And then I said to him, are you thinking about Grandma? And Timmy said, no, I'm thinking about you thinking about Grandma. And (laughs) just to make those words come out of my mouth now with you is hard to do. I want to tear up because this little boy, whom I thought was totally self-absorbed in little boy thoughts, was instead able to sympathize and empathize with another human being, imagining how I felt his father with a dead mother on my mind. And to be able to say that in such efficient and beautiful words, no, I'm thinking about you, thinking about Grandma, I learned something. Mm. I learned something about writing, and I learned something even more about empathy. Yes, and what it means to be a human being and our capacity to stand in the shoes of someone else. I so appreciate that uh, your book includes uh, so many uh, revelatory ideas about what is behind good writing. And um, I I want to ask you about a couple of them. But first, I want to give you a chance to, to talk about an interesting experience that you had with your own father, with whom you had, uh, as you've already alluded to, uh, a, a, a sometimes difficult relationship. Your father, among other things, was unfortunately an alcoholic, and at least at certain points in his life was, in your words, thought of as the town drunk. Uh, but you tell us about one day when, in your words, your father was trying to be a father to you, and he gave you, in a sense, a little assignment. Tell our listeners about this intriguing moment from your own childhood. Yes, in a way, it's an embarrassing moment. In other ways, it's uh, a heartwarming moment. I was in my bedroom one afternoon, a Saturday, when I was maybe eight years old or so, and my dad came into the bedroom carrying a big, fat book. And he handed the book to me, and he said, I want you to pick uh, uh, five stories out of this book. I want you to read them, and I want you to talk to me about them. And then he left. I was flabbergasted. The book was so big. It was a book of short stories by Ernest Hemingway, collected stories. So I dutifully picked you know, five stories. I tried to pick the shortest ones I could find in the book and then and read them. And then went looking for my dad to talk about him. Well, he, he vanished on this summer afternoon, probably went drinking. And I waited for him for a while. I remember sitting on the back steps 
trying to think of what can I tell them about these stories. They were way beyond my abilities as a as an eight year old to understand the material in the stories. And I was both afraid and sad. Where did my dad go? Well, he never again mentioned those stories. My thought is he probably for a while decided I'll be a good father and give my kid good things to read. But then he went off to the VFW or the American Legion or someplace like that and uh, didn't return until very, very late at night, long after I was asleep. Well, this memory stuck with me for 50-some years of this summer afternoon. And one day I decided, well, I'm going to try, I'm going to try the same idea with one of my own children. So I gave a, a story of, of Ernest Hemingway's, a story called The Killers, to my older boy, Timmy. Asked him to read it and talk to me about it. Uh, the story is a story of a boxer who either throws a fight that he's not supposed to throw or vice versa. He doesn't throw a, a fight that he's supposed to throw. And uh, a gambler has sent two thugs to kill this boxer for not doing what he was supposed to do. So I, at one point, uh, the boxer, whose name is Ole, says, well, I'm tired of running. I'm just going to lie here in bed and let them kill me. And I asked Timmy what he thought about that, that man waiting to be killed without running. And Timmy said, I'm, I wasn't thinking about that. And I said, well, what were you thinking about? And he said, well, I was thinking, don't boxers get hit in the face? And I said, yeah. And he said, and don't boxers hit other people in the face? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I was thinking about why would anybody ever want to be a boxer? <laughs> Which is, it's not what Hemingway wanted us to be thinking about, but it's a good lesson in, for a writer that sometimes readers take our stories in ways we don't intend as writers. They'll be bringing their own temperaments and their own values and their own backgrounds into a story. And they may be seeing things and thinking about things that the writer never intended. And that's a, that's a great lesson for a writer to learn that you can only control so much when you tell a story to somebody. Um, and beyond that, the reader or the listener to the story makes up kind of his own story. It's what Timmy had done. Mm. I appreciate that uh, as you discuss this, you you make what I think is a, a tremendously uh, important point as you're writing to Timmy and Tad. You say, someday if either of you sits down to write a story, please remember that it will become your responsibility to leave room inside the story for your reader's own joys and terrors and lost fathers. You go on to say, mediocre stories leave little such room. Bad stories leave almost no such room. Bad and mediocre stories explain too much. They tidy up the world. And uh, I think that is so intriguing because it, it reminds us that somebody with the very best of intentions might labor over a piece of writing and uh, and in a sense ruin it by in a sense, putting too much into it or putting the wrong thing 
into it. Uh, what advice beyond that would you give to a young writer in, in terms of avoiding this kind of pitfall? Well, I think the way you described it was perfect, that, that to tidy up the world in a story, it's, it's a kind of a lie that the world is an untidy place. And some of the things that most intrigue us are those that are mysteries to us. What happened to Amelia Earhart? Did, did Lizzie Borden take an axe and give her father and mother 40 wax? We don't know. And the same applies oftentimes to our own lives. We think we can explain our own lives, but oftentimes we do things that even we don't know why we do them. Why did we choose that job over that job? Was it just serendipity, an accident? We don't. So my, my hope is that if my children ever decide to become writers, they'll be careful not to over-explain things. It's, it's a little bit like joining a magician backstage where once you understand how a trick is done, the mystery is gone and the wonder and the awe and that sense of delight one gets at watching a magic trick that baffles you. And to explain it away is to somehow remove a little bit of the awe and the wonderment that that life delivers to us. You, you write in this chapter, the essential object of fiction is not to explain. Explanation narrows. Explanation fixes. Explanation dissolves mystery. Explanation imposes artificial arrogant order on human contradictions between fact and fact. The essential object of fiction is to embrace and widen and deepen all that is unknown and unknowable who we are, why we are. I just love every single word of that. It's given me so much to talk about. I remember slaving over that because in the ordinary world, we'd ordinarily like explanation. Ah, when we play the game of Clue, we're excited that we found out that Colonel Mustard did it with a candlestick in, in the conservatory. However, as soon as we solved that mystery, did Colonel Mustard do it or not, we stop caring. We play another game of Clue that we instantly, are, everything is tidied up and resolved and we lose interest. And the big issues of the human life that we all confront, whatever our jobs might be and whatever our walk of life, we're, we're all, I think, fascinated and tantalized by what's not known. We dream dreams about the future, but we don't know if they'll come true or not, or to what degree or in what way our dreams might come true, if at all. And that makes us keep turning the pages of our own lives. But I think if we knew with absolute certainty what tomorrow will deliver to us, it it wouldn't be as, as wholesome and exciting a life to lead. It would simply be connecting the dots that we already know exist. So I'm a pretty big believer in the power of surprise and the power of mystery, and it draws us to turn that next page of our own lives. We're speaking with best-selling author Tim O'Brien about his most recent and long-awaited book, Dad's Maybe Book which uh, explores all kinds of 
fascinating themes, including as we have just been uh, talking about uh, various themes related to to the to uh, the the matter of of story. There's a really great uh, moment in the book in one of these homeschool chapters in which you give your sons a long list of, in a sense do's and and don'ts and one of my favorites is number nine do not impose symbols on your work let symbols grow in and from your work if you write a sentence that contains a symbol merely to insert symbolism hit the delete key and dip your computer in clorox clearly you (laughs) feel strongly about this (laughs) i do i do too many too many bad books or books that i find myself disliking are kind of impose a, a, a lesson on themselves a little, and, and therefore feel artificial. Nothing in my life, is nothing, no voice has ever come out of the earth or out of the sky saying, here's the symbol of what just happened to you, or here's what it all means, that events occur to us and they take on meaning, but the meaning is, for me at least, always kind of fuzzy and a little ambiguous. And in a book to artificially impose order on a story, here's what it all means, uh, has a, has a, I don't know, how do I say this politely? It has an arrogant feel to it. Hmm. And it feels a little bit deceitful that life doesn't speak to us. Uh, the gas chambers at Auschwitz didn't talk to the victims. They killed the victims. And afterward, to try to impose some moral on it all, a single moral, feels to me artificial. And what a writer of stories tries to do, and what I try to do, even in Dad's Maybe book, a work of nonfiction, is so much as possible, let the anecdote be itself. For example, one night, young Tad and I, he was seven years old or so, we're watching a basketball game on television. And Tad said to me, how old was that guy in the Bible, Methuselah? And I said, I don't know, maybe a thousand years old. And Tad said, wow. And then for the next hour, we we just watched the basketball game. And out of nowhere, an hour later, Tad said, what exactly did he eat? (laughs) <laughs> well, I, 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 I laughed, but I didn't try to explain it, and because it, it's, a, it's a mystery to me. What was going on in that little boy's head for an hour as he watched television and tried to puzzle out, how does a guy get to be a thousand years old? And to explain it would take the humor away, and we'd stop laughing, and we'd be in the world of an Alice analysis and abstraction. So for me, the book is studded with, I don't know, 50 or 60 such anecdotes that have no beginning and no end. They just are. The way life just comes at us and we'll laugh, but we won't try to impose order on it Mm. and impose meaning. Could I read one of my favorites? Do you mind? Yes, sir. I uh, love it. From uh, chapter 18. So there, And there are indeed some chapters in your book that are a single paragraph and not a lengthy paragraph at that. And this one titled Child's Play. 
Tad, at age four or five or six, once played with two German-speaking boys in a sandbox in Place de Vogue, directly across the street from our hotel in Paris. Everyone seemed to be getting along nicely. Castles were built. There was excellent teamwork. Later, when I asked Tad if he'd understood the two boys, Tad nodded and said, They know what sand is. (laughs) And, of course, you could have gone on from there to write for probably 10 pages on the importance of brotherhood (laughs) and so on, but but it's like Tad said it all. I want to ask ask you about uh, the chapter actually right before that titled Balance, in which, among other things, you are honest enough to tell us about your fervent hope that uh, your two sons, in one way or another, would prove to be athletes. And you, you, you say very specifically and clearly later in the chapter that it had nothing to do with your own love of sports or caring about sports. It was all about the happiness and security of your two sons. Tell our listeners just a little bit about uh, this particular chapter and uh, and also in a sense the vulnerability that you were uh demonstrating in in sharing this uh, with us well the chapter really begins way back in my own childhood i don't say this in the chapter but i grew up in minnesota and uh where sports were important but they weren't king of everything and i now live in texas where Football, you know, reigns supreme as the god of gods in the state. And athletics is a kind of currency of the realm, especially in high schools among not only young men, but young women as well. Athletic prowess counts for a lot in the state. And the consequence of failing as an athlete, not being good enough, fast enough, strong enough, aggressive enough, and all the rest can push you down the the sort of teenage hierarchy to less than popular, less than the the good person in this school. And so naturally, like probably any father, when my son is playing basketball or some other sport, I can't help but wish for the the best for him, that he'll, he'll do all right. May not be a star athlete, but competent. And it turned out that neither boy was that great at much of anything. When it came to athletics, little Timmy, when he was eight years old, playing lacrosse, instead of being aggressive and trying to score, would stand in the middle of the field balancing his lacrosse stick on one finger, looking up at the Texas blue sky, balancing while everybody else was chasing the ball. I remember a little Tad playing soccer and... uh he kept kicking the ball to the other team. It looked like intentionally. And at halftime during one of the games, I went up to him and said, what are you kicking the ball to the other team for? And he said, Dad, you told me that sharing was a good thing. (laughs) It left me flabbergasted, but he had a point because I was trying to teach him that sharing was a good thing. In any case, the boys never really uh, succeeded as star athletes. They don't care much for athletics. Timmy did, though, however, learn to ride a unicycle. And uh, 
learn to dribble a basketball as he was riding his unicycle and do other tricks on his unicycle. And I doubt that LeBron James, I'd love to see him get on a unicycle. I don't know if he could do it any better than Timmy could, and probably a lot worse if he could ride it at all. So the point is it's all relative. It's a, a balance. And a father has to learn the way I did, the hard way, that you can't dream a kid's dreams for him. You, as much as my muscles would twitch on the sidelines watching them, I couldn't play for them. And I had to surrender, I think as all fathers have to surrender, to what their children aspire to, what their children uh, have an urge to succeed at, and not what you, the father, want them to succeed at. It was a hard lesson for me, um, and there was plenty of pain along the way, mm. a lot of failure. But in the end, by surrendering to what Timmy and Tad wanted, I found myself a, a much happier guy that they were doing well at what they wanted to do well at. I think another point in the book when you are disarmingly honest and vulnerable to us is in a chapter titled Timmy's Bedroom Door. And uh, this comes at a point when your son Tim is just about to turn 15. And uh, he is becoming, at least in some respects, a rather uh, typical adolescent young man. Uh, much more withdrawn from you uh, it, th- than he had once been. And for you, the door to his bedroom becomes a, a, a symbol of that. And you write towards the beginning of this chapter, uh, standing before it, meaning that bedroom door, listening, wondering, partly curious and partly terrified and partly lonely, that fortified bedroom door makes me want to buy a keg of dynamite and blow it forever <laughs> off of its hinges. I'm sure many parents will read those words and, and very closely identify. And I'm going to leave it to our listeners to explore more of that chapter and that story. What I really want to ask you is, what is it like for you to not only share a moment of vulnerability for yourself, but also in an instance like this to be sharing with the outside world something about your son, Timmy, or at other points in the book where you're talking about your son, Tad. And and what did that feel like? I should think that that was a a very different and I should think somewhat unfamiliar sensation for you compared to the experience of the other best-selling books that you have shared with the world. Oh, it was absolutely different. It was so different that it was the hardest thing I've ever done as a writer. Simply to summon the courage to say things that were painful to admit, even to myself. The distance that that grows between an adolescent young boy or boy and a father is extremely painful. I tried to wish it away and think this will end in another day or two and he'll come back and give me a big kiss and sit on my lap. But he couldn't. He was almost 15 years old. He wanted privacy. He had the the interiority that I had as a a boy of that age. 
And I think, as you just said, fathers, if there's a father anywhere who hasn't felt this, I'd be really surprised in one way or another that a human being that we once held um, as an infant and grows into a 15-year-old with his own desires for the world, his own thoughts, his, his need to occasionally at least be alone. So the bedroom door was not, not even just a symbol. It, wasn't, it was a physical object between me and my, my beloved son. This big, glossy door that I had hand-painted and was so proud of. Weighed a ton. It came from a bank in England and went on his on his the wall to his room. Became a physical thing that I that I would lean against and, and hate. That I wanted that closeness back again so desperately. I was angry at the door, but I was so lonely that uh, he would just shut himself up behind that door and in a way shut me out. I can report the good news, and the good news is that it's more or less ended now. Yeah, his door remains closed sometimes, but no longer all the time. And he is spending more and more time with me now that he's a junior in high school. He's more of an adult willing to talk about himself than he had been back at that early age. The book is so remarkable, and I want to say also that I appreciate it on the deepest level, uh, despite the fact that I myself am not a parent. And, uh, and so what I want to say is one does not need to be a parent uh, to read this book and, uh, and appreciate it uh, with, with a profound uh, sincerity. Uh, and yet I, I want to say also that for anybody who has traveled anything remotely like the, the, the road that you have traveled, uh, will find all kinds of things with which they will deeply uh, relate. The book, again, is Dad's Maybe Book. It is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and the author, Tim O'Brien. Tim O'Brien, I thank you so much for giving the world this wonderful book, and I so appreciate you giving so much of your time to talk about it today on The Morning Show. It was my pleasure and honor. I really appreciate your great probing questions. It doesn't happen often, and I do appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to add this brief postscript to the interview that you just heard. There was no time in our conversation to touch on any of the points in the book in which Tim O'Brien shares some of his painful experiences as a soldier in the Vietnam War, nor uh, any time to talk about his poignant return to his hometown of Worthington, Minnesota. But I do want to read for you a portion of a chapter called The Best of Times, in which he offers some very discerning thoughts on memory. Tim O'Brien writes, After one broken leg and after a bazillion spills and crashes and near amputations, my daredevil son Timmy collided with his third birthday, and a few days later his brother Tad became a stylish one-year-old. It has been an amazing time in the life of this Johnny-come-lately 59-year-old father. So many indelible moments. Later on, he writes, And yet, on the dawn of this Father's Day, June 8, 2006, 
The thought occurs to me that neither boy will remember more than a fragment of our miraculous time together. That which is everything to me will become almost nothing to them. If I were to vanish from their lives at this instant, my sons would have no recollection of their father's face or voice or human presence. Seems impossible, doesn't it? But even as adults, we salvage precious little from our own lives. Vividly lived in minutes and hours seem to erase themselves as we scurry towards eternity. The meal we savored, the joke that had us laughing all night, the TV program that held us transfixed, almost all of it is lost. Just one of many remarkable moments from this remarkable book, Dad's Maybe Book, by Tim O'Brien. I'm Gregory Berg.